This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Father, whatever it is you do by means of the Holy Spirit to prepare a soul to hear, we invite you to do it in us. We are hard-headed and hard-hearted by nature. We are ruled by sin in the flesh by nature. We are self-centric and self-centered by nature. But Lord Jesus, your nature invades us as Christians and alters our nature so that we bear the image and the likeness and the behavior of Almighty God. And I pray that our ears would be as your ears Our eyes would be as your eyes and our minds would be as your mind. And that we would discern and understand the deep things of the kingdom of heaven. And that we would be altered to reveal to this world around us the great person of Jesus. And that we would declare with our behavior today, behold the lamb. As we simply live out our lives in obedience and yieldedness to your almighty presence and spirit dwelling within us. I pray, Lord Jesus, that by the end of this message, we would be leaping for joy because of your great work within us. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Well, I'd like to dedicate this message to one of our students that just graduated. I met with him uh, for coffee this last week, Michael Morgan. Uh, He asked me a question uh, we, we didn't have much time together, but uh, in the short time we did have, it was a very special time. And at the very end, he asked me a question. I said, is there any, any other thing? And he said, yeah, I had a question. He asked me a question, and it would just happen to tie into an entire study I'd been doing over the past two weeks. But last week, I ended up, instead of preaching on what I had been studying on, I ended up preaching a message called Spiritual, Spiritualized Selfishness, which is a very significant message. But... This happens a lot, by the way. I spend a lot of time studying, and then I end up not preaching on what I studied on. And then I sort of allocate my notes into special folders just in case I ever want to go back and and look deeper into something that I dug around in. And when I was talking with him, I was so moved by what I was sharing with him. I opened up my notes that I'd been studying. I said, well, look, I have it all organized right here. And I was so moved by my notes uh, on this topic that it ended up, ended up becoming this message. I talked with Sandy. It was right after that, I think, and I had made mention of the fact that God is really stirring this in me. The whole reason I was studying in the first place is because he was stirring it within me. But then I, this is the same thing that God had been stirring in Sandy. Uh, she had titled it something different. She had been titling what gratefulness and thankfulness, and she sent me a quote the next morning uh, on it, sort of knowing what I was studying, And she said, you're going to love this quote. It was a quote from Major Ian Thomas. And that's where the title comes from. I'm not going to start with it, but I'll get to it in just a couple minutes here. Okay, look at this title. Incorrigibly 
cheerful. Now, you have to sort of have a basic education to understand the word incorrigible. That would help. Now, cheerful, most of us understand what it is. Incorrigibly cheerful means you refuse not to be cheerful. No one's going to take my cheer away from me. You're just cheerful and you're unwilling to give up your cheerfulness. I like this message. This is a Christian. We are incorrigibly cheerful. There is nothing that could ever happen to you in your life that could ever steal that cheer from your soul. Nothing. And I mean it. Nothing. However, we don't live that way. And so this message breaks down the anatomy of those that leap for joy. This is a fun message. Now, this harkens back to last week. I think I started out last week's sermon with this uh, scripture from 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, and by the way, this is a command, rejoice always. The word always means always. It means always without stoppage, never ceasing. You are to rejoice that way. Pray without ceasing and give thanks in all things, or in everything, give thanks. Now look at this tagline on the end. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is the will of God, that you would rejoice always, that you would pray without stopping, without ever unplugging from God, you would be in constant communion with him. And in all things, in every situation, you would give thanks. Wow, who, who can live that way? A Christian. I don't want to make this sound like this is doctoral level Christianity. I'd like to introduce us to this as basic kindergarten level Christianity. This, when you pop out of the spiritual womb, this is how you start behaving. Why? Because this is God's behavior. And don't you realize who lives in you? That. That's what lives within us. Okay, here's the quote that uh, Sandy sent to me this week. This is good. If you are to know the fullness of life in Christ, you are to appropriate the efficacy of what he is as you have already appropriated the efficacy of what he has done. Relate everything moment by moment as it arises to the adequacy of what he is in you and assume that his adequacy will be operative. And on this basis, in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, which is what we just quoted, by the way, you are exhorted to rejoice evermore. You are to be incorrigibly cheerful, for you have solid grounds upon which to rejoice. Now, here's the key question for us. Do you have solid ground upon which to rejoice in your own life? That you, if someone were to come to you and say, get that smile off your face. It's like, I can't. I have such solid ground and reason for this smile. There is actually nothing that can snuff it out. I'm so sorry. We need make no apologies for what God has done in us. Okay, the word encourage, well, I'd like to introduce you to it. It's actually in the typical use of it in the English language, it would be considered a negative term. For instance, for instance an incorrigible child would be one that disobeys and then you discipline. And he continues to disobey and you discipline. And he looks at you like there's nothing you could do to ever change me. That's called incorrigible. Okay, so that has a negative context to it, a negative concept to it. I would like to turn the tables on it to show you that there is a wonderful 
attribute to incorrigibility if it is applied in the right way. To be dogged and determined and pugnacious in the right way and for the right things is Christianity. Incorrigible. This is the definition. Now, I did add a couple words into some of these definitions, but I, I don't remember if this is like Webster's Online or something. It's one of the online dictionaries. I should have notated it. But I did correct some of the language here to make it fit with what we're talking about. But basically, it means impossible to correct from its course or set a right onto a different path. It's incorrigible. It's going this direction, and you can't stop it. It refuses to listen or to heed any other voice. It's just going. It's incorrigible. Athanasius was incorrigible. So when I give these definitions with each one of these sub-definitions, I want to link it with Christian history. Athanasius, some of you have heard me talk about Athanasius, but Athanasius lived in the time of the Arian heresy. This is hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and one of the most desperate moments in Christian history when Arius was coming into the church and literally bleeding his heresy into it and diminishing the deity of Jesus Christ. Constantine looked at Athanasius and basically said, the whole world has gone with Arius. Will you not recant from your position, Athanasius? And Athanasius proved incorrigible. He believed in the deity of Jesus Christ and he would not let that be snuffed out in his generation. And so the famous statement in history is Athanasius contra mundum, which means Athanasius against the world. So the way it played out is Constantine says, will you not recant, Athanasius? And, Ath and he said, the whole world is against you, Athanasius. Well, then Athanasius is against the whole world. Incorrigibility. That is a defining attribute of the saints of God throughout the ages. We will not be moved. Two, it means impervious to correction by taunts, pressure, intimidation, punishment, or pain. It doesn't matter what they do to you. They stick you in a torture chamber, and their goal, what is torture really about? Torture is about attempting to change your mind on something. You see, if we apply the pain just right towards your body, you will then say, no, stop, I'll do whatever you want me to. But what is incorrigibility? It doesn't matter what you do to me. Taunts, pressure, intimidation, punishment, or pain. Bring your best. I will not change my course or my opinion on the matter. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. This is the way it's always been throughout history. Christians are incorrigible. Richard Wormbrandt was incorrigible. You cannot talk about a nicer guy than Richard Wormbrandt. The guy, if you were to talk about the leading attribute of the, of the nature of God that was hallmarked in Richard Wormbrandt, it would be love and kindness. The guy was just one big bubble of love. You get near him, pop it, and love gets all over you. That's Richard Wormbrandt. And look what I'm saying to the poor guy. I'm calling him incorrigible. He literally would not bend. When it came to Jesus Christ in Romania, when the communist government was coming in, the KGB was testing the, the, the church pastors, basically saying, you know, I'll give you one option. You choose to, to give the communist message, or you get killed, one or the other. Richard Wormbrandt refused to back down. And so he was the test case for all the pastors because he rose up and he says, pastors, we cannot bend. We cannot change. Jesus Christ is Lord. It doesn't matter what they say. He said it right in front of them, right in front of the KGB. So they arrested him, threw him in prison, and tortured him. 
What was their agenda? To turn him and then cause him to go back in front of all the pastors and say, hey guys, I was wrong. But guess what? Richard Wormbrandt was unmoved. And even after all those years of torture, I think it was 10 straight years of torture, they could not change his mind on the matter. And whenever they would come at him with blows, he would come back with love. You can't change me. I'm all about Jesus. In fact, you might want to know him. Frustration at the highest levels. Won't this guy change? No, I cannot change because the, the one who lives within me changes not. Oh, Christianity. Number three, incorrigible means to be determined and unalterable, hence impossible to improve upon, i.e. the laws of nature and mathematics are incorrigible. That's what it says. That's actually the, the illustration it gives. Laws of nature and mathematics are incorrigible. You can't improve upon them. You can't change them. Two plus two is just two plus two. It's perfect. What do you, you don't say, well, two plus point, 2.156 plus two equals four. You can't change it. It's perfect. God is incorrigible. His nature is unbending. It's unchanging. When we adopt it, we become unchanging in that nature as well. Eric Little was incorrigible. You guys remember that story from Chariots of Fire? That classic story where this man, basically, who wanted to honor the Sabbath day, and all growing up, his family always honored the Sabbath day. And then lo and behold, he makes it to the Olympics. He gave his life to train for the Olympic Games, yet his qualifying heat, I think it was for the 400, for the 400 fell on a Sunday. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't run in the heat. Uh, Eric? And I'm not talking to me. Eric Little, by the way, I do think that Eric Little and Eric Ludy are bosom friends, okay, even though I never met the guy. It's just like, that's my name up there. I love this guy. But Eric Little would not bend. And I, the pressures that were put upon him by the Prince of Wales, by the government, by his other uh, colleagues on the Olympic team, I mean, he's going to run for, for, the, for the United Kingdom here. I mean, come on, you're, you're going to make us look like fools. Don't you care about country and king? I care about country and king, but I care about my God more. And I will not bend. He could not improve upon the fact that the Sabbath was being violated. And to him, there was an issue of conscience, and he cannot run. And so as the story goes, Lord Lindsay gives up his spot in running. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was the 400 that Lord Lindsay was going to run in. Lord Lindsay says, just to see you run. And Eric Little actually gets a different race that wasn't on a Sunday, a race that he hadn't trained for. And he's at the Olympics running against the world's best. And guess who wins the gold medal? Eric Little. Number four, this is the definition for incorrigible. Suffering, for, this is the one Eric added. Okay, this wasn't in the dictionary, by the way, just in case you're starting to wonder. It's like, really? Merriam-Webster? Uh, for suffering from an incurable love for Jesus Christ, an incurable devotion to his truth, and an unrelenting givenness to his joy. Can't help it! I cannot help it! But I suffer from an incurable love for Jesus, an incurable devotion to his truth, and an unrelenting givenness to his joy. So sorry if it offends you, world. Actually, I'm not sorry. Behold the Lamb of God as he works within my life. The saints of God are supposed to be incorrigibly cheerful. We are grieved by many trials, and yet 
We greatly rejoice. We rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Did you see the front half of that? We are grieved by many trials. How, how do most of us respond when we are grieved by many trials? Oh, woe is me, grieved by many trials. What are the saints of God? They're incorrigible. It doesn't matter what comes against us. What is the response? What comes out of us? We greatly rejoice. We rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's not like just try and have a good attitude, buddy. You represent the king, okay? Keep your head up. That's not what the scriptures say. And that would be an improvement upon how most of us live and think. I'm saying that's not what God says. He says, this is your opportunity. Shine! Greatly rejoice. Rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We are reviled, persecuted, and falsely accused. And yet, it says in Matthew 5, Blessed are we, let us rejoice and be exceeding glad. Not just glad, exceeding glad. It's like this gladness is just like effervesces over. It's exceeding. We don't even have room to contain it. We are so glad. That is not a normal response. That's a Christ response. There's only one way to have this type of response, and that's to know Jesus. And it's to have Jesus firmly planted in your soul. And what comes out is Jesus, his response in all situations. We are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Most of us are like, oh, I don't like that scripture. I don't, I don't really want to partake in Christ's sufferings. Those are pretty dark and dismal. That's not how a Christian thinks. And yet, we may be glad with exceeding joy. You see a different pattern. You see, Christians function differently than this world. This world is all about self. This world is all about woe is me. This world is all about pitying itself. We as Christians are all about being a vessel through which the joy of God can shout forth, can leap forth, can be proclaimed. And these dark moments are our greatest opportunity. We endure tribulations, and yet we are exceeding joyful. We face trials and testings, and yet we count it all joy. You starting to get this concept of incorrigible cheerfulness? It's just all over the place in Scripture. You start looking into this, and by the way, I'm giving you one, probably one hundredth of the Scriptures on this topic in the Word of God. What's funny is we all are reading the Word of God, but we have a tendency to glaze over on these points because for so long our personal experience has not been triumphant. And as a result, it's like, oh yeah, I know it says it, and yes, if you heard it, you'd say, that sounds familiar, I have read that, I read that this morning. But we don't appropriate it. We don't expect it. We don't actually expect to count it all joy. Oh, yeah, that's a little extreme. It's, a little, it's just sort of Christian poetry. It's sort of a romanticism of Christian thought. No, it's actual fact of how we as Christians are supposed to handle something. If I tell one of my children to sit still, what does that mean? Sit still. It's not a romanticized concept where they can wiggle the more. That's an illustration from earlier this morning. <clears throat> uh, we have a pop quiz. Pop quiz, I know you didn't have any time to prepare for this, but that's what a pop quiz is about, okay? It tests you where you're at, as opposed to you having time to arrange yourself and study and get prepared for the quiz where you could give the right answer. It tests what's in you right now, okay? So let's find out what's in us right now. 20 questions to test your incorrigibility. I love that word, incorrigibility. Have you ever been exceedingly joyful? Now just ponder it. I don't want you to give the Sunday school answer, you know, where you say, oh yeah, absolutely, Eric. No, I mean, have you? 
Because it's a great question if you have not been exceedingly joyful, not just have a flicker of joy for a moment, but have you ever been exceedingly joyful, the type of joy that literally forces noise out of your body? Ah! Sorry. It forces a little dance maneuver in your left leg. That's where it goes out in me. My, my right leg doesn't dance very well. My left leg does little things like this. When I get excited, it'll, it'll twitch. It does, if you watch it closely. Don't, you don't need to, don't worry. <clears throat> Have you ever been exceedingly joyful? You know what my answer is? Yes. I understand this. But you know what? If you were to ask me, do I understand it to the fullest degree? Oh, not even close. I feel like it's tip of iceberg stuff that I understand, but I know it. So the question is, have you ever been exceedingly joyful? If so, when was it that you were exceedingly joyful? That's an important question. Because what I want to find out is, did your joy, or what you're calling exceeding joy, did it emerge when everything was good for you? When everything was comfortable? When all the stars seemed to align, if you will? And your life just seemed to be working. And someone came up to you and said, I want to offer you a job. And it'll make you 500000 a year. And you're like, oh, exceeding joy. When was it? Because when it was will define where it came from. Did the joy remain? Or did it fade when the circumstances changed? Because if you did have joy, and you found that it immediately faded... You know, a little piece of bad news came. Someone punched you in the nose, you know, later that day. What happened to your joy? All gone. It didn't last. Because it was based on circumstances and not on what it should be. And I haven't taught you what it should be based on yet, but we'll get there. Four, did it fade the moment someone overlooked you, slighted you, or criticized you? Did it fade the moment someone was harsh with you or spoke unkindly towards you? When those things happen to any of us, that is reason for a, a dour, sour mood, isn't it? And hey, I was overlooked. Hey, I was not considered. If there was a justified reason for us to allow our cheer to go to the wind, it's these things. But that's what the world has taught you, and that's how we naturally pop out of the womb. But God teaches us different. Did it fade the moment you received bad news from some corner of your life? Okay, I want to go through level one trials, the ah shucks trials. These are trials that you will face daily, okay? And I want you to question yourself. This is a pop quiz. I want you to test your incorrigibility. What is your response to the small inconveniences of life? A missed meal. Remember that rumble in your stomach? You're just feeling a little weak? Do you start to get frustrated and, and have a bad mood? Yeah, I know some people that do. Receiving a smaller portion than others around you. Imagine they're dishing out food. This is a classic guy thing. They're dishing out food, and you look at your little pile, and you're like, what in the? I'm a growing guy. That's half of what she got. Okay? Does it bother you? Does it disturb you? Does your joy whew, fade? In the opinion, what if an opinion, your opinion is overridden by the group around you? A haughty look from others. Does it dissipate through an unkind word, a delay in something important where you're having to wait and wait and wait, and you're starting to get frustrated? It's a low, what about a lower quality product than you ordered, a shoddy job done, the pres simple presence of tax time, or the absence of a thank you after a lot of hard work offered? If these things remove your cheerfulness, then you're, you're very weak in the incorrigibility department. Let's just put it that way. In other words, you're a pushover. 
The enemy can do any of these things without even trying. Natural life will bring those things your way. The enemy doesn't even need to waste time on you. He's got you right where he wants you. Your cheer can't stay around. He can darken every corner of your soul simply by letting you go your merry way. It's not a merry way, your dark way. Level two trials, the gulps. Okay, now these don't happen every day, but we'll all recognize these. These are all things that we've all gone through at various levels and degrees. What is your response when you are forgotten by the people you love on a holiday or birthday? That's always hard, especially for those of us that are now like in school or traveling around. It's funny, even as you get older, birthdays really don't mean that much to me. However, if everyone ignored me on my birthday, do you know that that's still bait for even me, even though I don't even care about my birthday and I'd probably forget that it was even happening? If someone said, isn't this your birthday? Go, oh yeah, it is. Did anyone call you? You know what? They didn't. It's bait. Now hopefully I wouldn't fall for that, but the point is, these are the gulps in life. They're a little greater degree because it's, it's a strike from someone near and dear, someone that we would have higher expectations for. Number nine, what is your response when your bank account is low, overdrawn, hit with a bill, a penalty, or a tax payment it won't be able to handle? Oh, I mean, this is the type of stuff that will send most people straight down the the grief toilet. How do you respond to it? What is your response when there is a strange ache in your side, a weird weakness in your heart, a bizarre sensation in your neck, or an unwelcome spot on your body? Huh? Huh? Are you considering worst case scenario and does your attitude immediately dim? In other words, are you just looking at your life as if you're subjected to whatever the enemy wants? Or are you willing in all things to give thanks, to rejoice in every circumstance? It doesn't matter what is happening to you. I want you to realize that God's joy and cheerfulness is meant to be incorrigible. It means it can walk straight through these things without blushing, without blinking, without concerning itself, without being altered. Number 11, what is your response when someone else gets the credit for a success that rightfully belonged to you? That's a hard one. Incorrigible cheerfulness. What is your response when God convicts you of sin and every other Christian around you remains completely unconvicted and unmoved over the same behavior in their own lives? Welcome to the life of a returning Ellerslie student back home. Because you are burdened over something, you're concerned over this, and you're convicted over it, no one else is. Are you still incorrigibly cheerful? That's the test. You're not responsible for their conscience, you're responsible for yours. Let God deal with them. Level three trials, Uh uh-oh, the wowzers. These are tough, okay? However, you'll notice that I've already prepared you before I went into this, that we are to be rejoicing in the darkest of situations. And by the way, the wowzers are not even the darkest, okay? So if you're failing, what was it, on the ah shucks? If you're failing at the most basic level of difficulty, you're not going to pass these. Your cheer was gone way back when. But if you can learn to handle those daily moments, those daily trials with the right attitude, guess what? The next step up, which I forgot what they're called. Do you guys remember what my step two, level two was? Oh, the gulps. You'll be able to handle the gulps. And if you learn to handle the gulps well, then the wowzers won't be taking you down anymore. 
What is your response when a pestering physical weakness keeps knocking on your poor body? What is your response when people slander you, criticize you, overlook you, and vilify you? What is your response when people steal credit from you, diminish your work, and attempt to sabotage your efforts? What is your response when, you, when people falsely accuse you and publicly denounce your name with lies? I don't, I don't know about you, but those things aren't very enjoyable. None of us would classify those as fun. The Bible already gives us our response. Technically, I haven't even given you the response that I'm going to build the rest of the message on, but it involves getting off the ground. It's called leaping. Leaping! We are supposed to be leaping in a situation like this, but what happens? Most of us are in a fetal position. We literally are paralyzed. The enemy is able to bring us down, but a Christian cannot be brought down. A Christian that is filled with the ever-increasing rejoicing of God can walk through the most harrowing and difficult situations. Do you remember Richard Wormbrandt's statement? After being beaten up by the guards, he comes in amongst uh, the other uh, uh, prisoners, and, he, and they go, are you all right? Are you all right? And he says, I made a deal with the guards. Like, what? You made a deal with the guards? He says, I preach to you. They beat me. They're, that way we're all happy. That is incorrigibility. I like it. Even has a sense of humor. Level four trials. The Omaha beaches. Now, for those of you that don't know your World War II history, this is serious stuff. This is life and death. Okay, someone can vilify you and slander you. You don't just keel over and die. This is the type of stuff where literally your life is in danger. Everyone else on planet Earth will be running, screaming with fear. But the Christian is meant to respond completely different. Incorrigible cheerfulness is not just for those of us that live in middle-class America that have peace in our life, a white picket fence, a dog you know, that barks and you know, plays with the kids. It isn't who has incorrigible cheerfulness. In fact, the middle-class Americans are some of the most depressed people on Earth. It's not circumstances that lead to triumph in the soul. I'll tell you what, it, what leads to it. But first of all, this is just the pop quiz. It's still part of the pop quiz, by the way. I don't know how you guys are doing. Level four trials, the Omaha beaches. What is your response when Christianity is declared a crime against humanity? People you love are being carted away into prison camps. The name of Jesus is being publicly trampled and the world governments are hunting you down and seeking your destruction. Is this a time when most of us whip out the leap for joy? That we sing songs of praise? That we shout a shout of joy and triumph? Praise God that we could be alive in such a time. Hmm. This is the pop quiz for your soul because the Bible makes it very clear how we're supposed to respond in a situation like this. We're supposed to be incorrigibly cheerful. And you can be like, well, how do you do that? I can't, there's nothing to be cheerful about. See, you have the wrong concept of cheerfulness right there. You're looking for there to be something cheerful about in the natural realm. There already is something. It's beneath your feet. You stand upon it. It's Jesus Christ, and he will not be moved, and he will not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His work upon the cross is efficacious for you now. You have everything you need for life and godliness. Stand there and be cheerful. Number 18, what is your response when you are thrown into prison, even though you be innocent of any crime? What is your response when prison guards beat you, torture you, mock you, and trample upon your dignity? And 20, what is your response as your life is ebbing away in a dank, dirty, and dark prison cell at the hands of evil men? Incorrigible cheerfulness. 
Now, I realize there's a good propensity. I mean, we're here in America right now giving this message. We're not prepared for the Omaha beaches in our spiritual life. Every single one of us esteems a Richard Wormbrandt, and we esteem his response in prison. But he was built for that. He allowed himself in a hostile world where he, when he had to make smaller choices, he learned to love and to allow joy and peace to cascade through him. But when we face our trials, our little miniature things, the world around us here in America says, well, you have reason to be you know, pitying yourself there. You have reason to you know, be in a, in a downcast mood right now. Even in the body of Christ, we hug each other instead of exhorting each other to rejoice, leap for joy. This is your great privilege. Demonstrate the kingdom of heaven in and through your attitude right now. The gusher. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. You know who said that? Jesus. What? what what's he talking about? Did you guys have a river flowing out of you? That sounds sort of strange, doesn't it? Can you imagine just walking around and it's like, pff, uh, this river's gushing out? It's not talking about a physical watery river, which is probably good. Out of his belly shall flow rivers of water. The word belly means innermost. It means the innermost part of who we are. And I want you to realize that when God sets himself within us, what happens is already foreshadowed in the Old Testament and in the New. It talks about a fountain. It talks about a gusher. That's why I'm, I'm calling it that. A gusher that breaks forth in the house of God. Do you know what you are called by Paul? The house of God. The temple of the living God. The house. And in that house, beneath the throne, is literally a gusher, a fountain that bursts forth. And Jesus says, he that believes on me, as the scriptures have said, out of his belly, or out of his innermost, out of his house, out of the place of the throne room within him, shall flow rivers of living water. The river from the innermost. So this is what it says. Joel 3 says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters, and a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord, and the water, and shall water the valley of Shittim. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Now you're hearing about this. Now when you read in Revelation, you're thinking of this great, lofty, heavenly place where there's a throne, which is it's reality too, okay? I'm not saying your, your vision is wrong. And out from under this throne is a gushing river. But I want you to realize that we are a foretaste. The saints of God are the new Jerusalem. We are the dwelling place of God. We are that house. And out of this house, Jesus says, will flow forth rivers of living water. This very fountain, this river of life comes out of who? You. Me. We're Christians. We're the ones that have the gusher inside of us. The river of joy. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. That river shall make glad. Now, I know glad is a trash bag to most of us. It's not really what it's talking about here. But this is a euphoria. This is a joy. This is a happiness. 
that is hard to describe in earthly terms because everyone here on earth gets their happiness and derives their happiness from circumstances, from a good turn, money in the bank, people liking them, fame, popularity. That's how people garner their happiness. But the kingdom of heaven is built upon something different. And it's this river that makes glad the city of God. It's a river. What kind of river makes people glad? It's like, oh, there's a river. Oh, I'm so glad. You know, I guess if it was in a, a, a dusty, dry desert, sure, that would be, you'd be happy to see a, a river. But, you know, in, for the most part, rivers aren't what we would say in the American culture that make us glad. This river does. Who is this river? This river is God. This river is the spirit of Almighty God, the very life of God that is deposited within us and then gushes forth into this world. The term, this is from the message, if you guys remember, it's called betrayed with a kiss. And I gave you this Greek word, it's agaleio, which means much leaping, a vigorous springing or gushing up of water, exceeding joy. That's what it means. Isn't that an amazing word? Much leaping. It's this concept of having a fountain that's been capped. And then you uncap it. Have you ever seen like one of those oil wells? Uh, it's like in the Mickey Mouse things. I think I shared this during Betrayed with a Kiss too. When it gushes forth, you have this oil well that's gushing forth and Goofy's always on top, bouncing uh, on top. That's sort of what this is like. It's agaleio. It's much leaping. It is literally, it forces up. It actually has a pressure in it. And when it is released within the saints of God, it, it causes frowns to turn upside down into smiles. It forces everything up. The body up. You leap. What is leaping? It's being lifted. Truly being lifted. There has to be something going on inside of you to lift you. Believe me. I'm not much of a leaper. Okay? I'm not. I don't have a tendency towards the charismatic or the Pentecostal sides of things. Even though I believe in Pentecost and charis, grace, is everything I believe in. I believe in the infilling of the Holy Spirit. However, I don't necessarily handle everything we do here at Ellerslie in that typical fashion. And so leaping, I think, has been associated with a certain camp. It's God's. It belongs to God. And anyone who has God leaps. Now, I haven't leapt very much in my life, but I decided, in agreement with the Word of God, that I was going to start leaping. So the other day, and the leaping occurs at the darkest moments. And the other day, I was in a... uh, I think it was a meeting with Sandy. Wasn't it with you, Sandy? And we were dealing with something that was not very fun. Let's just put it that way. And I, we were finishing up. I was about ready to walk out. I think I held up my hand like this, and I went, yeah! (laughs) Okay, might not look that good, but it was important. It's important for me to allow, to uncap that gusher. And to say, I have what this world needs to see, but it's only going to be seen if in these dark moments I agree with my God. And when things get tough, I allow it to come out as opposed to turning inward and saying, woe is me. It's coming out. Agaleo. Blessed is in 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein you, agaleio, you leapt, you burst forth with joy. 
Though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. What an interesting context. All these incredible truths are real. But in the midst of the manifold trials and temptations that you are facing as the saints of God, you burst forth into leaping. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love, in whom though now you see him not, yet believing you agaleio, you leap, you burst forth with joy, with joy unspeakable and full of glory. But rejoice. Inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with agaleo, with joy, with bursting forth, with much leaping. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You know that every single one of these is dealing with dark, formidable situations? Every single one of them. When you study joy and you study agaleo, you study rejoicing, you see that the context of it is the darkest corners of life. This seems to be the channel, the opportunity through which this agaleo and this leaping can come forth. Most of us are waiting for the good things in life to have agaleo. And God says, no, it's reserved for the darkest. You can have it during the good, but it's reserved and it comes forth and it shows forth the glory of God with more crispness and clarity in the darkest times because it's so opposite the way this world is wired. When you see someone in their darkest moment cheering and jumping up and leaping for joy, it catches your attention. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Then it says, rejoice and be agaleo. Rejoice and leap. What, did you guys just catch that list? When men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely? What? What? Why in the world would you leap in a situation like that? Because God is desiring to leap within you. For great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Blessed are you when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Listen to this statement. Rejoice you in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. Four rules for Christian leaping. That sound like a fun thing? You guys, you're thinking, what in the world kind of church am I coming to today? <laughs> ah, we're going to leap. I'm not going to force you to leap. It needs to be genuine. It needs to be the outflow of God. And I'm not looking for some type of ceremony up here where we all walk up and leap. I don't actually care if your feet get off the ground. I want you to be leaping inside. Because if you're leaping inside, you know that your outside will just follow suit whatever way it needs to in our American culture. I really don't care what it needs to look like on the outside as long as it's God's rendition of it. Four rules for Christian leaping. Number one, the leaping must be always unceasing and without pause. It's sort of like skipping. <laughs> you have much to rejoice in. And so even as you're walking down the street, I don't know how to skip. But there's a skip in your step. It's a constancy of attitude. 
You are buoyant within. The leaping must increase in vigor and energy with the increase of difficulty, bad news, opposition, and challenge. Listen to this. I'm going to say it again because you might have missed it. The leaping must increase in vigor and energy with the increase of the difficulty, the bad news, the opposition, and challenge. The badder the news, the greater the leaping. They're going to feed, who was it? Ignatius, St. Ignatius, who was the disciple of the Apostle John, to the lions the next morning. Well, for most of us, we would be cowering. We would be grieving. We would be sobbing, trying to find some way out. The saints wanted to rescue me. He says, no, this is my time. Don't rob this from me. And he rejoiced. And he said, my salvation has finally come. He had this enthusiasm which befuddled everyone around him, that it was holding him captive. And he called the lions his friends, for they were the ones that were going to lead him into the very presence of the one he loved more than anything, Jesus. He called the lions his friends. For it is in these said trials that a greater measure of grace for leaping is supplied. So when these trials come, what you need to know is that the greater measure of grace is supplied for you to do even greater leaping, even greater rejoicing. Number three, it must wield its strength this is your leaping. It must wield its strength and vitality in all circumstances without exception and incorrigibly remain cheerful no matter the state of things in the natural realm surrounding. So it's not just in the moment, but it then must remain. It must remain steady. And the darker the times, the greater measure of grace is imparted to the saints of God to remain joyful in all situations. If all of us were thrown into a prison cell right now, we see the walls rumble with our praises. We sing. We leap. You know what uh, Richard Wormbrandt, uh, the way he termed the chains in prison, he says, they gave us instruments. So he said, they gave you instruments? What kind of instruments? Well, our chains. And with those chains, we praise the Lord. That's the right attitude. Everything gets turned into a blessing. You thank God in all circumstances. You rejoice evermore, always. You pray without ceasing. You stay connected to your God, adhered to your God, in communion with your God always. It doesn't matter what the enemy is doing. You do not base your internal state of being based on what the enemy in the natural realm is conspiring to destroy you with. You base the soul of the, of the saint of God upon him, the rock, and he does not alter and he doesn't change. Bad news comes and it doesn't affect him. It says the kings of the earth take their stand against him. They literally are rallying the nations and all the strength to take down the anointed one. And it says the one enthroned in heaven laughs and holds them in derision. Yeah. Join with him. He's laughing. He is not cowering before the enemy. And this is the one who lives in you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. And four, this is the final uh, point for leaping, out of the rules for leaping. It must be constantly aware, you're, you're leaping, your soul must be constantly aware that to leap in the darkest, most trying moments is one of the greatest tactical maneuvers the saints of God can wield against the kingdom of darkness. It is one of the key weapons of our warfare that is mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. So we rejoice in trials because those are the key moments in battle when we as saints can devastate the powers of Satan and see the glory of our great King Jesus revealed. The anatomy of a leaper, looking inside the ever-rejoicing soul. The three joy-filled premise points of the leaper. 
So there is something that makes you leap. I'm not just wanting you to go out and leap just because you heard a message about leaping. I want you to have the reason for leaping. I want you to leap because you can't help but leap. I want you to obey these scriptures because you can obey them, not because you should obey them. I want you to have the substance in your soul that enables you to obey this message as opposed to just wanting and wishing that you could have something like that in your life. That's dismal. There's no reason to rejoice if you don't have the reason for rejoicing. Three joy-filled premise points of the leaper. First, God is joyful, which means full of joy. You see, a lot of us have this concept that God is sort of serious, and he's, you know, if you ever were to catch his face, actually, God is full of joy. And I'm not just coming up with that. I'm going to give you a few scriptures. There's loads of scriptures on this point. But joy is not just a byproduct. It's you better be joyful. Hey, get some joy. You're supposed to be leaping. And he's all serious. Because, well, he doesn't need to be that way. It's just something we're supposed to be. And there are things that we, where we are different than God. However, this is an attribute. This is called the fruit of the Spirit, which means it comes from him, is born within us, and then is born through us. God is joyful. Joy is not merely a byproduct of the influence of God. It is something God is. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. So God has a joy. Jesus is literally saying he has joy. My joy is what he calls it. And then it says in Nehemiah, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Not your joy is your strength. The joy of the Lord. He has joy. And his joy is your strength. As strange as that is, how does that work? The Lord thy God, he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will joy over thee with singing. In other words, he has joy. And he's going to rejoice with that joy. Doesn't that seem strange, thinking of God rejoicing? It's just sort of a funny mental picture that most of us don't have. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word of in, in much affliction, listen to this, with joy of the Holy Spirit, which means the Holy Spirit doesn't just give rise to joy in us. He has joy. In other words, he possesses joy. The Holy Spirit is joyful. Isn't that strange? It's true. There's a whole bunch more that I'm not going to go through. Number two, God's glory must be made manifest in this earth. So the first premise point or in the anatomy of a leaper is that they must know, you must know, that God is joyful. Because if you know that God is joyful, do you know that it's actually reasonable when you realize that he enters into you, that he wants to express who he is to this world? Okay, so that's important. You must know that God is joyful. And then you must also know that God's glory must be made manifest in this earth. In other words, God's glory is his person, unshrouded and unveiled, the way he actually is. And we are meant to be glory bearers, the saints of God, which we don't have any glory in and of ourselves to show of God. But if God invades our being, takes these hands, takes these eyes, takes these mouths, takes these hearts, takes these feet, and makes them useful to him, guess what comes out? We begin to behave and to live the way he would live. And so... The glory of God will be made manifest if it's being made manifest. And if the nature of God is being expressed, what will that nature express? Joy. That joy will be expressed. And then three, thus, God must reveal his joy. So God is joy. 
God's glory will be made manifest, and part of that glory is joy. Thusly, God must reveal his joy. How does he wish to reveal his joy? Well, I have a little answer down here. To build man, you, me, as his sacred channel through which to pour out his joy. Can you imagine God going, I just have to get my joy into this earth. I just have to get it out. How am I going to do it? And then he looks at us and he gets a little twinkle in his eye. And he goes, aha, you. And you're like, me? What, what do I? You. You see, God plants himself in us and he's full of joy. He is the gusher. He is the fountain of life. And he desires to place that fountain and to break it forth within you so that out of your innermost would flow rivers of living water. It's water that is living and it brings life to everyone around you. However, most of us cap that fountain. Even if that, that fountain has started within us, we like stick a big, huge, heavy rock on top of it when we stand on top of it. We go, oh, not too much of that. You see, we still want to have this life be about us. And when that gusher moves forth, we can't have self-pity in a time of difficulty. We can't say, woe is me in a time of difficulty. We have to leap. You know what? Leaping isn't what most of us feel like doing when times are hard. And God says, this isn't about how you feel. This is about my glory. You do what I command of you. Be a flow through channel. Let let the cascading river come forth through you now, right now. And we're wanting someone to have empathy on us and hold us. And God's saying, you're a Christian. Let me flow my joy through you. And let it be a testimony to the nations of what I can do in a man or a woman on earth. Cairo, typically translated joy, rejoicing. To rejoice, be glad, to rejoice exceedingly, to be well and to thrive. So this word rejoicing, I want to break it down. The word re means to do something again and 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 again. Okay, to return. Okay, so you're going and then you return. You come back. Uh, so rejoicing. So here you, you see in it, if you take off the re, what do you have? Joicing. That's the action of joy. It's sort of a funny way of thinking. We've just been, in Christianity, we've been around the word rejoice in our entire life that we just sort of glaze over. But I want you to realize it's basically saying, I'm going to rejoice again and again and again and again and again and again. And I'm not going to stop. I'm rejoicing. I re-joy. So it's the act of rejoicing again and again. Which is sort of funny because we're like, well, how do you rejoice? How do you do that? Rejoicing. The act of allowing the exceeding great fountain of God's joy to burst forth in your life, uncapped, unhindered, forever bubbling. I want you to realize this is a choice in your soul. It's funny because I, I can almost guarantee you that every single one of you is attracted at some level to the concept of being able to leap for joy in your darkest moments. However, what this presses on is a point of selfishness within you. Because if you find gratification in self-pity, you know, this message hits right square between the eyes on that one. And it says, no more woe is me. No, in those dark times, you know what you say? For God's glory. God, flow through. Allow, I, I remove that capstone off that fountain. Come, come, lift me off the ground with joy. It is a deliberate choice to allow that fountain to gush forth in the darkest times. 
the four keys to uncapping the fountain. Number one, we must recognize the command to rejoice. You know that if you don't know that you're supposed to be rejoicing in those times, you won't do it. It's not natural to do it. But what if you did know? See, that's the problem with a message like this. Now you know too much. You're like, oh, that, that turkey up there. Now I know it. I can't plead ignorance. You know that in the darkest moments, when trials come in your daily life, whether they be small or whether they be huge, your response is God's response. Your response is to rejoice. Your response is to maintain communion with God and not turn to something else to find satisfaction. You don't go on your shopping spree. You don't gorge yourself with food. You don't you know, turn on the game or turn on a movie just to escape. You respond with God's response in every situation. You don't medicate yourself. You don't turn inward and say, woe is me. You are a channel for the fountain of God. Allow it to come forth. What would happen if the church of Jesus Christ caught this? Could you imagine if all of us were so excited all the time to say, oh, I just want the world to know. Here's my agreement with you, world. You hit me and I'll preach. Please falsely accuse me. I'll leap for joy. We'll make a deal. That's the deal already, by the way. You can just enter into it. All of us Christians throughout the ages are grafted into the deal. They hit us. They strike us. They mock us. They ridicule us. They falsely accuse us. And we rejoice. Who has the better end of the deal? The one rejoicing. They're the miserable ones. We rejoice and it's a testimony to them. And they go, I can't snuff this out. What is it? It must be real. It is. Join us. Join the pact. You can be hit in the face too and rejoice. So we must recognize the command to rejoice. This is not an optional behavior. To be a channel of uncapped, unhindered joy is a requirement of every Christian. Did you hear that? It's not a bonus attribute to the faith. Well, some people have it. Some people have figured it out, but others don't need to. What? It's a requirement for every single one of us. It's a rousing evidence of the spirit-indwelled life. Philippians 4.4. 4. Remember I said this is a command? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, just in case you missed it the first time, I say rejoice Rejoice again and again and again and again and again and again and again. No matter your circumstances, rejoice. Where is Paul writing this from? Philippians is written from a prison cell. It's a book constantly about joy and rejoicing, about this Cairo, about this Agaleo, this bursting forth and leaping. When Paul and Silas are thrown into prison, what do they do? They sing. He modeled this for us. Rejoice always, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It is a command. It is the will of God. When you enter into Christ Jesus, this is how it works. So how do you do this? After all, it sounds really nice to rejoice always, but it also seems completely preposterous. Okay, for those of you that are like, oh, he just acknowledged what I was thinking. It sounds preposterous, doesn't it? It's Pollyanna-esque. It's a little too grandiose of a thought to pray without ceasing. I mean, come on. Give thanks in all things? Yeah, right. Rejoice evermore, always, in all things. Okay, let me ask you a question. Can God lie? No, he can't lie. Hmm. Is his word the word of God? 
okay? Which is quite a statement in our modern Christian culture. Some people don't believe that. They believe it's the word of men that God sort of endorses indirectly. So, God cannot lie, and his word is the word of God. When it promises it's not on that screen, rejoice always. Can God exaggerate? Can God lie? No. When the word of God speaks it, it means it. God does not mock the saints of God by commissioning us to do something that he also doesn't enable us to perform. So do not mock the word of God by diminishing these words. You rise up and you say, I may not have it yet, but I'm going after it. And until I see that fully emblazoned within my soul, I refuse to let up. You know what I've been doing a lot of lately? Incorrigible cheerfulness. I have quite the interesting life. I have a lot of twists and turns to my life and a lot of bait for self-pity. You know what I'm doing at every turn? Yeah! All right! Yeah! I have been. It's extraordinary. So how do you do this? Number two, we must change our thoughts on joy. You see, we have a funny conclusion that many of us have come to on joy. It's just an emotion. It's an emotion that you can't control, by the way. It's like you either feel it or you don't. And so how in the world am I supposed to just have joy? I don't feel very good right now, and so I'm supposed to just have joy? Well, it's a good point. If you think joy is just a byproduct of good things happening in your life or it's some pleasure sensation, sure, I can understand why this would be confusing, which is why we must change our thoughts on joy. It's not a byproduct of a good occurrence, a good feeling, or a good turn. Drum roll. Joy is a person. And this person never changes, but it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In this person is no shadow of turning. God is joy. God is our joy. And so therefore, you don't need to try and drum up some pleasure sensation. You yield to what God is asking of you. And he says, I would like to do something in you, saint of God. Would you allow me? You say, absolutely. That's what Christianity is. It's just yielding. It's just allowing. It's surrendering to God's lead, saying, God, take this body and make it a temple of rejoicing. Make it a place on this earth, in this dark world, where you can shout and leap for joy as you intend to. Hold this world in contempt with what you do in this body. And when it takes the harshest blows in this world, I pray that you would come forth as a gusher in response, and you would give me everything I need to show this world your smile. The mystery of the lamp. Now, we have a message at Ellerslie called Dependence, and it talks about this lamp. I probably should have one up here. I think when Nathan Johnson taught it this last semester, he actually brought a lamp up. Let's imagine a lamp up here. A lamp is good for, well, one or two things. It can also look good. I said that the other week, didn't I? But a lamp is supposed to shine light. That's what it does. But to shine light, it must be plugged in. The lamp in and of itself cannot give forth any light. I'd like to draw a quick conclusion here because I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. But you cannot give forth any joy, the joy that we're talking about here, without being plugged into God. You're a lamp that is not plugged in. As a result, you're a useless piece of furniture sitting in a house that people keep tripping over. You must be plugged in, which is the concept of pray without ceasing. Stay plugged in always. God says, shine light. Stay plugged in always. And in all things, shine that light into every dark place. 
Light will always win, and joy is light. It is so opposite of darkness, so contrary to it. So the mystery of the lamp. Why does that lamp shine and this one doesn't? You have a lamp here that's shining, and this one just doesn't shine. Some of us might have joy, might be tasting this. And others of us are like, I'm so far removed from that. Why does one have joy and someone else doesn't? Well, why is that? It's because that lamp is plugged into an electrical socket and thus invaded by the powerful presence of that which supplies the virtue and grace for light to shine forth. You see, when you plug into that electrical socket, energy, electricity comes through and fills that lamp and actually takes that bulb and causes it to shine. But it needs the invasion of that power. If you do not have the something within you coursing through this lamp, you cannot shine forth joy. So all these scriptures are just poetic. They're meaningless to you because you can't do it. It's like a lamp saying, I'm supposed to shine, I'm supposed to shine, I'm supposed to shine. I feel like I'm shining. Someone says, how are you doing, brother? I'm shining. They're looking at you and you're a dead bulb. That's what most of us do. We try and talk ourselves into it. We think it's the power of positive thinking. It's not. It's the presence of Jesus Christ dwelling within you. Number three, we must behold the great foundation of the fullness of joy. What's the foundation of the fullness of joy? And you could say, well, it's Jesus. It is. But where did Jesus purchase that ability for us to become the flow-through channel of the joy? It's the cross. It's not just Jesus, even though it is. But how did Jesus make a way for Jesus to indwell us? It was the cross. The cross is the great work that prepared us to be indwelled by joy and to be flowed through channels for the gushing fountain. Joy is not just a person, but it's God Almighty who came to this earth and defeated the powers of sin and death in order that we might become sacred channels of his exceeding, bewildering, ever constant, and never capped joy. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. What's Isaiah 61 talking about? The cross. The work where Jesus made a clothing for us. He sewed for us the perfect garments of righteousness so that we could enter in to the throne of grace. We could be rescued. It's called salvation. The garments of salvation in the very beginning of Isaiah 61 10 says, I will greatly rejoice. Why? Because we have a foundation that will not be moved. There is nothing that can take this joy away from you. Why? Because the cross is victorious. It's transcendent throughout every generation. Its virtue is real. Its efficacy on your behalf is there. It's true. And you stand upon it. And there is nothing the enemy can do to stop it. Number four, we must embrace the means by which joy is made manifest. Yes, that's right. It's made manifest through our trials, our weaknesses, and our sufferings. Guess how it starts? It starts with you dying, you picking up your cross and following. Well, that doesn't sound like a very joyful venture. If you embrace the means by which joy is made manifest in your life, guess what comes forth? Joy. You see, you want joy, but you want it on your terms. You want joy the way everyone else on planet Earth is after joy, and that is, could things go well for me? If things go well for me, then, God, I will obey that. 
No, you'll never obey. You'll always be a dark prison cell. But if you relinquish your life and you turn it over to Jesus Christ and say, take it. The first difficulty that we must face is death to self. We must realize that we must be removed from the picture, that we must be dethroned. And then guess what? We become a flow through channel. And then the world starts hating us. We're shining light in a dark world. They don't want that light. And they start coming against us. And we're like, God, what's going on? No. We must embrace the means by which that fountain keeps gushing. You remain an incorrigibly cheerful person no matter what comes against you. And guess what? The fountain only increases. It increases and increases and increases. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. What a strange place to have strength made perfect. Most gladly, what a strange statement. Most gladly, therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What brings forth the rivers of living water? Betrayed, no, it wasn't betrayed with a kiss. Beautified by a scar. The message, it talked about the Feast of Tabernacles. And it talked about what draws out the beauty of Christ within us. Because what is in us comes out in our trials. And so what we, the way we answered that was the point of the spear. Jesus had life within him to give. And how did it come out? The point of the spear had to be stabbed into his side and outflowed blood and water, which is extremely significant of life, the power of the spirit, everything that he came to give to us as the saints of God. Well, you've been imparted the very same life. You see, Jesus died so that you would have that same life within you. And so what draws it out of you? The point of the spear. Couldn't you get it out of me a different way, God? You must embrace this, Christian. This is the great secret of joy all throughout the ages. God imparts something to you. And then in the darkness, you're stabbed with a spear. They hate you, they'll ridicule you, they'll mock you. And out of you will come life, will come light. And it will change this darkened world. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And then look at what happened to Jesus. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. That body is the body of Christ. It's you. I know that's Jesus, but I'm saying this is us. We're also supposed to follow him, pick up our cross. And that same spear is ready to pierce our side. But what's going to come out of us? A foul stench, irritation, frustration, hatred, Venom, grievance, unforgiveness. What comes out of us? It's supposed to be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness and self-control. That's what's supposed to come out of us. We greatly rejoice. We rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Blessed are we, let us rejoice and be exceeding glad. We may be glad with exceeding joy. We are exceeding joyful. We count it all joy. We are grieved with many trials. We are reviled, persecuted, and falsely accused. We are partakers of Christ's sufferings. We endure tribulations, face trials, and testings. By the way, those are the same scriptures cut in half. This is what most of us try and avoid right there. We're saying, God forbid. And what does our prayer become? No, God, do it. Because we want this list. 
We greatly rejoice. We rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Blessed are we. Let us rejoice and be exceeding glad. We may be glad with exceeding joy. We are exceeding joyful. We count it all joy. That's the way we want to be living, isn't it? Well, what's the secret? You embrace this. You embrace the trials, the reviling, the persecution, the false accusation. You share in Christ's sufferings. You endure tribulations and you face trials and testings. And you do it God's way. And guess what? You're incurably happy. You're incorrigibly cheerful. So when the point of the Spirit touches our center, we greatly rejoice. Blessed are we. Let us rejoice and be exceeding glad. We may be glad with exceeding joy. We are exceeding joyful. We count it all joy. Embracing the cross with incorrigible cheerfulness. Listen to this scripture in John 16. This is Jesus talking. Okay, remember this joy we talked about that is planted within you? And we're saying that it should always be there again and again and again, this joicing over and over and over again. It's an active part of your day. It's an active part of your week. It's an active part of your month and your year. It's not just for a little mountaintop experience. We live with this joy. It doesn't matter what we face. This joy is constantly resident within us. And what does Jesus say? Your joy no one will take from you. I, I want you to realize, you know when we talk about going to battle with the enemy and how Jesus did, he says, it is written. I just gave you one of the greatest it is written lines you could ever smack in the enemy's face right there. Uh, by the way, enemy, it is written that my joy no one will take from me and I think you're classified as no one. Get out of here. My joy remains. And I will be cheerful through this trial. I don't care what you bring against me. It only brings out more of this joy. Thank you. Thank you for hitting me. Thank you for the spear. You can hit me again if you want, because out comes even more joy. Rejoice always, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And rejoice ye and leap for joy. There's your little triumvirate of truth. First of all, when God gives you joy, he means it. And he will not retract and he will not repent of his gift to you of joy. He gives you a gusher. Now it's up to you to allow that gusher to begin to gush forth. Don't cap it with selfishness. Uncap it by allowing God to be God in your life. Take it as a command. He says rejoice always. Take it seriously. His word is business. He doesn't stutter when he gives his commands. He means it. Now you agree with it. And, you know, you can start leaping. Leap for joy. It's actually a command, by the way. Most of us in here are not leaping-oriented. But I would like you to practice today. Okay, I don't know what it's going to look like, and I, it doesn't have to be outward leaping at first. Some of you, I know some of your personalities are more inclined towards outward leaping anyways. But I want you to take every little small situation you face in life today that would typically turn you inward, that would typically cause you to grumble, that would typically say, hey, and it would somehow justify a removal of your cheerfulness. And instead, I want you to take that moment and say, no, God, I'm going to be cheerful. I'm going to be in stride with you and what you were desiring to do in and through this body and in and through this life. Incorrigible cheerfulness. Cheerfulness that never waxes old or weak, cheerfulness that is always present, and a cheerfulness that cannot be put down. Let's be the body of Christ in this world.
think that's it. Let's pray. What a great God we serve. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that every single one of us would yield and say, please, break forth your fountain within us. For those that have not yet tasted of even that fountain, I pray, Lord Jesus, that they would ask and that you would give them that deposit of your spirit, that gift of your life within, that they would have the very beginnings of that vibrant fountain, that newness of life in them. But Lord Jesus, those of us that have tasted, I pray that we would freshly yield today and that we would be in obedience with you to say, no, God, this is a moment to rejoice, to be incorrigibly cheerful, and we accept. You are so good to us, and I pray that you would supply us with the grace that we need to be obedient. We love you. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.